So just to continue this reflection, there's an account in the discourses of a, of a meeting of monks and nuns and the Buddha. And somebody asked the Buddha, you know, why is it that that person over there is cultivating metta and that person over there is practicing samadhi and that person over there is doing cemetery contemplations and that one over there is, is, is contemplating emptiness. Why all these different practices? And, and the Buddha answered very simply, you know, that it really is a question of temperament. How a person finds a pathway that actually allows for their, their own inner flourishing, their own inner development. And so it, it wasn't like a hierarchy of practices. But one thing you could be sure of is that all of these different pathways that the Buddha speaks about holds, one, holds this very key component of samadhi. Now when samadhi is cultivated, what is really focused on is what is called in Pali animata, which translates as a sign, the sign. So initially when people begin the practice, they choose a nimitta. And the nimitta might be the breathing process. The Buddha mentions, I think, 28 other possible nimittas, you know, in terms of objects or images or colors or shapes. But what is important is you have a nimitta. And the nimitta is what you are returning to, where you always come home to. This is what you're learning to remember and to naturalize. Now, this morning I raised the question of how much samadhi is needed. And uh, my answer would be quite a bit. Um, uh, I'm not sure there is such a thing as too much, but there's definitely such a thing as too little. Now, I also mentioned this morning that people can be totally fine and wonderful practitioners and not enter what are called the jhanas or absorption states. And I don't think they should be set up as the sort of goal of samadhi practice, because really the goal of samadhi practice is to cultivate this mind which is truly a friend and a refuge, that is stable. So not everyone will have the inclination or the temperament to cultivate jhanas or absorptions, but everyone, everyone in this room is quite able to achieve what is called access samadhi. And personally, I think this is a reasonable level of expectation in this practice. And you'll notice I'm using all kinds of words here that are generally not used. Progress, goals, expectation. It, it is realistic. This path has a sense of direction. And you know, if you read the discourses, you will hear strive, strive, strive. You know, it's not about kind of sitting back and hoping for a miracle. Uh, it is actually a cultivation. So everyone in this room is completely able to achieve, another one of those words, uh, access samadhi. So what is access samadhi? There are several factors within it. The first of these is applied attention and intention. We apply attention and intention to be present with the nimitta. You apply and reapply and reapply and reapply and reapply. Then the second characteristic of access samadhi is sustained 
attention and intention. You're able to sustain this. You're not needing to make so, so much reapplication. You know, you're not needing to come back and come back. Actually, your, your bond or your connection with your nimitta is very strong, and the attention begins to rest easily within this. The third of these factors of access samadhi is joyfulness. Joyfulness. Because that, that is the nature of that kind of integration. Um, you know, there's a wonderful quote, I'm, I'm probably not going to deliver it directly, but where the Buddha says, when the body, no, when the, when the body calms, there is joyfulness. When there is joyfulness, the mind settles. When the mind settles, there is peace and happiness and the end of distress. Okay? So the third of these factors is joyfulness because this collectedness of heart, mind, body, present moment has certainly a taste of great, there's no other word for it, joyfulness. Sometimes the word that is used is rapture, but that sometimes really overinflates, you know, that you, you've got to feel rapturous relation. Sometimes it's a very quiet joyfulness. The next of these factors of access, samadhi, is happiness. So this is actually really a calming of the joyfulness and a happiness that pervades body, mind, and present moment. And then out of happiness, is born this real, uh, reliable um, one-pointedness, collectedness. So th this is actually what everybody in this room is able to achieve. And I think it's, it's a realistic and very worthwhile um, goal, goal to practice for. Huh? I'm not going to use the word strive because that sounds almost too much. but. It's a very worthwhile goal to feel that we can put this in place in our practice because everything else unfolds so much more easily when this is in place. Okay, so I want to talk, I want to begin this afternoon to, by talking about some of the benefits of samadhi. You forget how to worry. <laughs> put it quite simply, you forget how to worry which is really quite useful in our life, forgetting how to worry. You know, if we really recognize the, the utter ineffectiveness of worrying um, and something we can do so much of that is so ineffective, we wonder why we do so much of it, because it makes no difference to anything except to distress the mind. You forget how to worry. That's quite a liberation in itself. The mind is much more calm, much more collected when it is no longer caught by the worrying pattern. It's not just that you forget how to, it's gone, it goes. It goes, it's a pattern that goes. It doesn't return sometimes, it just goes. That is actually quite an unbinding and quite helpful. I, it, it's really good, yeah? No, no, no. <laughs> Okay, so that, that's one of the key benefits because the mind is no longer delighting in this proliferation and no longer has any confidence whatsoever that worry is going to make a difference to anything. It's, it's just vandalizing our minds. 
So one of the key benefits of inner collectedness is really to begin to calm the habit of proliferation and the underlying mental states of agitation that generate proliferation. You know, we can have so many stories, hmm? so many narratives about ourselves, about others, about the world, about what might happen, what did happen, you know, about our futures, our past, other people, about our health. I mean, I don't know if, how you found it during the worst of the pandemic, you know? Um, you know, the, the stories that can be generated. And we actually give a lot of authority often to those narratives and those stories. You know, we can be quite convinced that they are telling us the truth about ourselves and others. There's a saying that most people think of their minds as something akin to a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the world as it is, not appreciating that the mind is the principal architect of that world of experience. And proliferation or propuncia has much to do with solidifying, solidifying these fabricated worlds about how things are. I think if we look underneath proliferation, we'll almost always spot this level of uh, underlying and agitation and anxiety and aversion. Um, and it's exhausting, quite honestly, it's, it's exhausting to be always lost in thought. It, it can be very lonely to be lost in our own narratives. And it can be so disconnecting from the world as it is with all its joys and sorrows that's constantly changing. You know, when you read the introduction to the Satipatthana Sutta, the kind of pivotal sutta on establishing mindfulness, you know, the first instruction is to breathe in calming the formations, to breathe out, calming the formations. And the formations are all the patterns of agitation that can beset us. So it's a very intentional way of breathing. It's not just watching the breath or observing the breath. It has a purpose. It has an intention. And as we begin to calm the body and the mind, you can feel the habit of proliferation beginning to calm. And we, we begin to taste, I think, the sweetness of calm abiding. This is a great life skill. It's a great meditative skill to come out of this world that's so, so contracted by the boundaries of our thinking. Not to say that there's not useful thinking, of course there is useful thinking, but it's intentional, it's creative, it's chosen, it's chosen. Beginning to calm the proliferation, one of the great benefits of calming the proliferation, it's beginning to calm the process of self-building. How our sense of who I am in any moment is rooted in how we think about ourselves. Hmm? How we think about ourselves. Yeah? I can be a happy self, I can be a sad self, you know? I can be an anxious self, I can be an angry self. But that self is actually built 
and it changes. You probably notice today you've inhabited a number of different selves from the time that you woke up this morning. Um, and yet it is all rooted in how I think about myself and how much, again, authority we give to that thinking about who I am. And it gets reinforced. It gets reinforced by agitation, gets reinforced by aversion. So calming the self-building and, the, and the, all of the thinking that builds the self is really a way of practicing non-clinging. It's really a way of practicing non-clinging. And when you consider what happens in your practice, when you return to your nimitta, when you return to your chosen object, you are always returning from somewhere. You're always returning from somewhere. And very often from a thought pattern, you know, an image, a memory, a plan. And so by returning to your nimitta, you're actually cultivating this capacity for non-clinging within our minds and hearts. And when there is no clinging to thinking, there is no clinging to forming views of self. The next of the great benefits of samadhi is happiness, an inwardly generated happiness. There is much in the world, in life, that is lovely, that is beautiful, that touches us deeply, that gladdens the heart, gladdens the mind, and it's not in any way to reject that or to look down upon that. It is actually often where we get tastes of a gladdened mind. But that is an outwardly generated happiness. The Buddha speaks about it as a worldly happiness and a non-worldly happiness. And the worldly happiness is there, but the non-worldly happiness is a happiness that is really generated inwardly and born of a well-collected mind and heart. And of this happiness, the Buddha says, this kind of pleasure and happiness should be pursued. It should be developed. It should be cultivated. It should not be feared. It should not be feared. There's a very profound insight, I think, born of this inwardly generated happiness. It changes how we relate to the world and what we expect from the world. You know, we don't get up in the morning and look at the world and say, make me happy. Hmm? We know that there is the lovely and we know that there is the unlovely. But it alters, I think, our relationship to the world. I feel in like deeply ethical ways. You know, we can cease being a consumer of the world as being the provider of our happiness and well-being. We can cease looking, looking outwardly and saying, if I just had more of this, you know, if, if I could just have more of this, then I would be happy. I think our relationship to the world of conditions is, is easily rooted in the externalization of happiness and unhappiness. So we can become so enchanted with the pleasant conditions, the pleasant events, the pleasant taste, the pleasant touch, the pleasant sights, and develop aversion to the unpleasant. And so much of our lives, as we know, can be spent in an endless busyness of rearranging conditions 
in order to have the maximum pleasant and the minimum unpleasant. Samatha Samadhi is not only a guardian of the mind. I think of it as being a guardian of the world. When we discover that inwardly generated happiness, there is far less inclination to, to pursue and to avoid. You know? We're able to be with, with life as it is. Protecting the world from the impulses of our craving. I, th I think that once we have really a glimpse of this inwardly born happiness, you know, those impulses of craving and aversion truly begin to calm. We really know that the world of conditions can indeed offer moments of great pleasure and appreciation, but not the lasting happiness that we long for and yearn, yearn, for, yearn for. There are numerous discourses um, that recommend the development of samadhi as an essential factor in beginning to know things as they actually are. Relieving perception of all of its associations. This is one of the jobs of mindfulness, is to sever the link between perception and emotional history and association, so that we can see anew, so that we can see anew. And samadhi is a powerful way of doing this alleviating perception, relieving perception of that world of associations is what, of how we have seen something before, I think releases into our lives a genuine sense of wonder, a genuine sense of wonder and, and awe. We begin to see that the changing nature of all things, the lovely and the unlovely, without producing a lot of narrative about it. It begins with knowing the nimitta as the nimitta, the breathing as the breathing. I hope that piece is clear for you because it's incredibly important, the severing of the link between perception and history. Because when we don't see something anew, we, we keep bringing the past into the present. Right? You know, I see, uh, you know, you think about this just in terms of family experience, families, you know. I know, I know about the myth of the happy functional family. Um, most families are not quite like that, you know. So, so think about returning to your childhood home for, for, for Christmas or Shabbat or, you know, whatever it is, you know, while you return to your family home. You haven't been home for months, you know. You return to your family home. What happens when you see your, you know, your third cousin, you know, has been such a pain in your life, you know, or you know, your 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 mother saying, telling you, "I know you," you know, you're doing that again, you know. What happens inwardly, you know? What happens inwardly, you know? What happens just when we see the person? Do we see them in you as a fluid, changing, potentially transformed human being? Or do we see them as there's that third cousin who's always irritating me? And the perception has got that world of association. And we not only have the perception, but we relive the emotional history. You know, we're already aversive. You know, we're already irritated, or we're already anxious, or we're already intolerant. So cutting that link is what allows 
life and other people and ourselves to unfold, you know, because we don't just do this outwardly, we do it inwardly. Even when we say, I'm this kind of person, you know, or I'm this type, you know, I'm an aversive type or a fearful type. The Buddha speaks of samatha, samadhi, as a journey of purification, which again can be a very charged word. You know, it can be, you know, impurity, something terrible, you know, impurity, something wonderful. That's actually not how the Buddha uses the word purification. Samadhi allows the mind to open enough and to still enough that that which has been more unconscious and habitual comes into the light of consciousness and awareness. So, you know, those old patterns, you know, those anxieties, those aversions, those fears, they, they come, those, those guilts, those shames, you know, they come into the light of consciousness. But it's not just that they come into the light of consciousness, that samadhi is providing enough stillness and enough stability that they also are let go of. They are released. And that is actually the journey of purification. You know, it's something is arising, it's understood, and it's released. Being able to see the arising, but also the unbinding from patterns of reactivity. Part of that, part of that process of unbinding is the word discernment that I mentioned earlier. As patterns arise, you know, we are able to discern what is skillful and what's unskillful, what's helpful and what's unhelpful, what to feed and cultivate, and really what to fast, what to not feed. Knowing what leads to affliction and knowing what leads to the end of affliction. Now, samadhi begins to liberate the mind from the grip of the veiling factors. The Buddha was very clear that samadhi alone does not uproot the veiling factors of craving for ill will, uh, craving for sensual pleasure, of ill will, of restlessness and worry, of dissociation, of doubt. That samadhi alone does not uproot these patterns. But samadhi is said to blindfold Mara, to blindfold Mara, that there is enough stillness and steadiness of mind and heart that the veiling factors cannot find a foothold. And sometimes when Mara is blindfolded, can arise but have no power, we're actually able to see this as it is we're actually able to begin to have enough pause and enough space to know the veiling factors as veiling factors and to not feed them, to not feed them. The calming of the veiling factors does not leave behind it a vacuum. When Mara, you know, these veiling factors are often referred to as Mara, this sort of personification of all of these unhelpful patterns. Um, the calming of, of Mara does not leave a vacuum. In fact, when we're not gripped by the veiling factors, 
There's a world of sensitivity that is available to us, a capacity for wholehearted listening, a mind that can think creatively, a greater sense of space rather than story, and a heart-mind that can be truly responsive. So these are a few of the benefits. There's also the benefit of resilience. Resilience. This mind that can be so steady, this heart that can be so steady in the face of the difficult, that can be touched deeply and yet not shattered by the difficult. So there's a tremendous strength of mind, resilience of mind, found within this development of a well-collected heart and mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.